Hey everyone, uh, go ahead, grab a Bible, find Mark chapter 12. And while you turn there, uh, let me just take this chance to welcome all of you who are joining us on one of our five campuses across the East Bay. Uh, hello to those of you watching online or who are a part of this uh, as a part of CF Inside. And special shout out to our Brentwood campus. Uh, after a decade of meeting every single weekend at Freedom High School, they are in their second to last weekend before they move into their new permanent building. So we're, we're pretty excited for them, yeah. Um, and uh, Easter weekend's gonna be an exciting, an exciting weekend for our Brentwood campus. Um, the passage we are gonna be in today, it follows Jesus on uh, the Tuesday of what Christians have come to refer to as Passion Week. And if I had to summarize Mark chapter 12 into one word, the one word I would choose to summarize it in is this, inspection, inspection. See, it was actually this month last year that Garrett and I uh, closed on our house as first-time buyers. And if you've ever been a part of the home buying process before, you know that one of the very first things you do once you enter escrow is to set up a home inspection. And it's when a professional comes out and they spend hours uh, just carefully walking and inspecting every square inch of the property. I mean, they look at the electricity and the plumbing, the roof and the chimney, the soil, the foundation, the structure, like anything and everything. It's, it's a very like meticulous, laborious process. And afterwards, the inspector will come back to you with an inspection report and it will list item after item after item of every potential fault or flaw, blemish, hazard that your home that you're about to buy uh, has. And our, the home we got, it was in great condition. The, the previous owners were awesome, great pride of ownership. But man, I'm standing there listening to this guy list item after item after item, like half of which I don't even know what they are. And I start like having a little anxiety attack. I'm like, oh my gosh, like, what did we just get ourselves into? Like, we're buying a money pit. Like, this is gonna be the end of us. And thankfully, my realtor was awesome. And he, he was like, all right, Becky, breathe. Like, he noticed what was going on. He's like, every single house, it doesn't matter what the house is, everything, every house is gonna have stuff come back on the inspection report. Like, it's just how it works. But all of these things, like, they're really minor, okay? So take deep breaths. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> and as difficult as it may be to kind of get that inspection report back on this house, you're about to sink, like, an ungodly amount of money into, it's actually a necessary process, right? You, you wanna know, and the inspection process is necessary because you wanna know what you're getting yourself into. You need to know if the house you're about to buy is worthy of your investment. And any uh, law-abiding Jew would have been very familiar with this process of inspection as well. You see, uh, in Jesus' day, animal sacrifices were one of the main things that occurred at the temple in Jerusalem where Jesus is at in Mark 12. And in particular, there was this offering called a burnt offering. And it was where a person would bring a sacrificial lamb and, and they would present the lamb before the priest and then the priest would inspect the lamb to make sure that it didn't have any blemishes or defects, to make sure that it was a worthy lamb of the sacrifice that was about to be made. And then after the presentation and the inspection, the lamb would be slaughtered and sacrificed on behalf of this person's sin so that they could once again be in right standing with God. And so there was a presentation, an inspection, and then a sacrifice. And one of the really cool things about Mark and the way that he writes and structures his gospel is he actually shows us that Jesus, the sacrificial lamb of God, 
goes through the same process. Mark 11 that we studied last weekend, it details the events of Jesus arriving in Jerusalem where he is presented. He's presented before the people and they receive him with praise and adoration. They're shouting, Hosanna, like, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then Mark 12, where we're at today, is his inspection. Jesus, he's about to engage in several different conflicts with the Jewish religious leaders. I mean, these guys, they are coming after him one right after the other. They are going to test him. They are going to meticulously inspect him, trying to find whatever cracks, whatever fault they can so that they have a reason to arrest him or better yet, kill him. And these, these guys, they have so much hatred in their heart for Jesus. But what they mean for harm, God is going to use for good. God is going to use this process as Jesus's inspection to prove to everyone that Jesus is the pure, spotless lamb worthy of the sacrifice that he's about to make in just three days on that fateful Good Friday. And the religious rulers, they are gonna do this inspection of Jesus in the form of three questions. Here's the questions they're gonna ask him. The first question has to do with allegiance. The second question they're gonna ask him has to do with the afterlife. And the third question they're gonna ask has to do with our purpose. I know, some of you guys are so disappointed in me that I couldn't come up with a third A, okay? I get it, I'm the same way. (laughs) Just pretend that our purpose is our, like A-R-E purpose. Does it work? No? Doesn't work for you? Okay, that's okay. But see, I believe today as we are studying Jesus' inspection, it's actually gonna help us prepare our hearts for Good Friday. It may even cause us to do some self-inspection of our own. So let's dive in. Here comes question number one. This one's about allegiance. Look at Mark 12. We're gonna start in verse 13. They sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Wait, aren't these people like trying to trick Jesus to kill him? Yeah, exactly. Like, it like reeks of insincere flattery. And Jesus, he totally gets it. He's like, seriously, guys, like I might have been born at night. I wasn't born last night. And then they finally get to their question. They say, is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Okay, remember, These guys are trying to trick Jesus so that they have a reason to kill him. This is the question they come up with, like a tax question. Hey, Jesus, how would you fill out your 1040 easy? Like that doesn't even make any sense. But actually, when you understand the context of what's going on here, it's it's a pretty smart question to ask. You see, for Israel, they pay their taxes to the Roman Empire. Taxes didn't go to their own government, to their own political party. No, it went to a foreign government, be it a military might that was oppressing them, right? So the idea of paying taxes, it kind of created this this political and social tension. On top of that, it created a religious tension. You see, the amount of, of money required to satisfy this tax, this imperial tax, it was a denarius, which was about the average daily wage for a person back then. And a denarius was a Roman coin, and on the coin was the bust of Tiberius Caesar. And around it in Latin uh, was the the phrase, um, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. 
Now you have to realize for a Jew, the very first commandment of the 10 commandments is you shall have no other gods before me. Like it is God and God alone. And so the idea of paying taxes to an oppressive leader who claims himself to be a God, like that's a big problem, right? How how can we pay our taxes and give our allegiance to Caesar? Like our allegiance belongs to God. And so you can begin to understand the the tension, the the turmoil that that the Israelites were were going through. There's a lot more going on here in this question. And so the brilliance of this question is there's no right answer. Like if Jesus says, don't pay your taxes, uh, that's treason. Rome can kill him, right? The religious leaders are like, awesome, problem solved. But if Jesus says, pay your taxes, the crowd's going to hate him. They may even stone him and kill him right then, right? These guys are like, awesome, win-win. Jesus is dying. This is great. And here's how Jesus answers. He responds, he, he asks for a denarius, which to me is an interesting point altogether because it means Jesus doesn't have a denarius. He has to ask for one. He doesn't even have enough money to his name that's equivalent of a daily wage back then. Talk about like relying on God for your daily bread. And he's given one and he holds it up and he says, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. If a coin bears the image of Caesar, then it belongs to Caesar. Okay, Jesus, like, maybe that's not what we wanted to hear, but that's a a good answer, I guess. But Jesus, he takes it a step further. It doesn't stop there. He says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. If a coin bears Caesar's image, it belongs to Caesar, but whatever bears the image of God That belongs to God. And now realize, these religious leaders, they are very educated when it comes to scripture. So Jesus says that, and they know right away he's referring to Genesis 1. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. See, Jesus, he's standing in the middle of the temple, and he's saying, hey, you are an image bearer of God, the God of the universe. Like, you were created to live with God, to live for God, to reflect who God is through everything that you do and everything that you are. He says, go ahead, pay your taxes to Caesar. Taxes are a part of life. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. It's just how it goes. But remember whose you are. Paying your taxes isn't giving your allegiance to Caesar's. Your allegiance belongs to God because you've been stamped with the image of God. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. And what is God's is you. That's what he deserves, you. What is it? What does it mean to give God me? I think if I had to define it simply, it would just be to give God all of me, my my past, my present, my future. Isn't it true for so many of us that there are disappointments in our past that we just can't seem to move on from? Isn't it true that there are, there are circumstances or realities of our present that we, we try to control and manipulate and maneuver and just desperately hold on to? 
Isn't it true that there's, there's worries about our future that, that, that we can't stop thinking about, that, that cause us anxiety? And God would say, just give it to me. Give me all of you, your past, your present, and your future. You don't have to have it all together. You just gotta give it all to me. You're an image bearer of the God of the universe. You belong to me. Your allegiance belongs to me. Jesus, he gives his response, and Mark tells us that the crowd is amazed. They're like, I don't know how he got out of that one, but he did. There was no right answer, but he came up with a third option. Question one didn't work to trick him. Let's see if question two does. The question two is about the afterlife. The Sadducees, the group of religious leaders who asked Jesus this particular question, they uh, were kind of like theological conservatives. They were very, very selective about what they did believe in and what they did not believe in. The Sadducees, they only believed in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. They didn't believe in the prophet books. They didn't believe in the rest of the Old Testament. The Sadducees didn't believe in angels or demons, heaven or hell, miracles, like none of it, including the afterlife. And so these guys, they focus their question on that very subject. They say, okay, here's this guy, Jesus. I mean, we heard him claim that he's gonna die and be resurrected three days later. If we can get him to, to, to admit how ridiculous of a concept the afterlife is, like, it will discredit him altogether. And so they say this. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow the man's brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, they're bringing up a real Jewish law here. You can find it uh, in Deuteronomy 25. The law states that if a, if a man dies and he didn't have a male heir to, um, to continue his family line, then his brother would have to marry this man's widow. The widow would marry her brother-in-law. And now I know some of you guys are thinking right now about who your brother-in-law is and you're getting very, very nervous. Don't worry, it's not a lot today. <laughs> You're like, I would rather lose everything I own than marry my brother-in-law. <laughs> Have fun talking through that at Easter, right? <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> but see, this law, it was established to care for the widow. You see, back then, women, they couldn't own property. They couldn't own money or possessions. And so this law made a way to provide for this widow to where she could keep her home and her property, her inheritance, even in the event that her husband dies and there was no heir. She would marry her brother-in-law and then the, first, the firstborn son that they would have would be the heir for her deceased husband. And so these guys, these religious leaders, they, 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 it's with this law in mind that they present Jesus with a hypothetical situation. They say, okay, Jesus, Imagine that there's seven brothers, okay? Seven brothers, but there's not seven brides for those seven brothers, there's just one bride. Yes, yes, musical lovers. The rest of you guys have no idea. Watch the musical Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, it'll change your life. Anyways, it might not change your life, that's, that's asking a lot, but it's awesome. <laughs> there's seven brothers, the first brother marries and then he dies without leaving a male heir. So the second brother marries the widow, but then he dies without leaving a male heir. And the same happens with the third brother and number four and number five and number six and number seven. All the brothers are dead. What kind of woman was this? <laughs> then the wife dies. Whose wife would she be in heaven? They're like, this is such a good question. Yeah, there's no way he's gonna be able to answer this. We're gonna get to trap Jesus and prove to how ridiculous the afterlife is to everyone, all in one question. 
<laughs> and here's how Jesus responds to them. Look at verse 24. Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? Translation, are you idiots? <laughs> like you don't even know your own scriptures. Man, can Jesus say that to these guys? I don't know, he just did, I think that's incredible. Jesus tells them, he's calling them out because they're focusing on one little detail and trying to discredit the whole thing because of that. Have you ever known someone like that? Who like focuses on one small detail, one, one verse, one concept of Christianity and then tries to discredit the whole thing because of it. And Jesus is saying, you guys, you're, you're ridiculous. He goes on to say, of course there is an eternity. Even, even in the book of Moses, you know, the Torah, that scripture you cling so tightly to and nothing else is scripture, only the Torah. He says, even there, God shows you that he has eternity in mind. He says, you know that story about Moses and the burning bush? And they're like, yeah, of course we know Moses and the burning bush. Like, that's the first story we teach our kids in Sunday school. Okay, yeah, don't talk to me about Moses and the burning bush. And he's like, okay, Moses and the burning bush, you know this, okay? Um, why do you think God speaks to Moses in the present tense and not in the past tense when he tells him, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, it's because God's the God of the living, not the God of the dead. <laughs> Jesus, he takes their question and he just raises it to an entirely different level of thinking. He says, hey, eternity is not simply a prolonged earthly life. It's like, and an entirely different dimension of life altogether. And so you can't look at the things of this earthly life, you can't look at the relationships of this earthly life and then try to make sense of how it will be in eternity. The reality is the Bible gives us glimpses, gives us taste of what eternity is like, but in actuality, we can no more imagine what eternity would be like than this little boy in my womb could imagine what the Grand Canyon looks like at sunset. Like it's just a completely different realm of comprehension. Jesus is saying, but just because you can't comprehend it doesn't mean it's not real. And he finishes his response to these guys by saying, you are badly mistaken. Jesus just burned them, okay? He's saying you are badly mistaken because eternity is real. And man, if eternity is real, then how we live our life now matters. And so guys, he says, you're missing it completely. Isn't it true that for so many of us, our value, our, our significance can so easily get wrapped up in the things of this life that are temporary? Right, we, we, we focus so intently Sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally on things like our jobs, our possessions, our status, our, 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 um, our, our, all, all of those temporary things instead of what is eternal. And Jesus says, hey, don't mess this up. Like, this is important. Just because you can't fully comprehend eternity doesn't mean it's not real. And so focus on things that are eternal. Focus on the things that have eternal significance, eternal impact, and not just the temporary things that are fading away. They may seem important now, but in reality, in the big scope, they're pointless. So what are those things that are eternal? What are those things we should be focusing on? Well, Jesus, he answers it in the next question. 
Here's the third and final question they bring to Jesus. It's in regards to our purpose. <clears throat> Look at verse 28. <clears throat> One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Some translations call him a scribe. A scribe was kind of half theologian, half lawyer. Uh, you see, there, the, the scribe's uh, whole job was to study um, the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of laws, of commandments in the Torah, and to interpret the meaning of each of those laws. And so this man would have been very educated, very knowledgeable, especially on Jewish law, on the commandments. And so his question of Jesus is this. Of all the commandments, which is the most important? Now, there were 613 commandments just in the Torah alone. And then there were another 1,500 commandments in the Mishnah, which is another Jewish religious text. So you can imagine, when there's hundreds, even thousands of commandments to follow, like every single day, you would begin to wonder, okay, which one of these is actually most important? And this would have been a common question um, to, uh, to debate among the religious elite. elite. Like, it would have been a common thing to ask a rabbi, okay, what's your perspective? What's your opinion of what the most important commandment is? It kind of would be like um, asking, like, who's the greatest National League baseball team of all time? Like, you can give your argument, you can give your opinion, but everyone knows it's the St. Louis Cardinals. <laughs> Here's the best part. I have the microphone. You can't argue with me. <laughs> I mean, but really, who can argue with the 11 World Series? Anyways, okay, I'll be quiet before tomatoes start being thrown at me. And so Jesus, he responds to him. And it's a question that's not just about like, what's the most important? The, the heart of the question is really, what's the commandment that's over all of the commandments? The, the one commandment that should like guide and dictate how we live our lives. What's the commandment that gives us our purpose? And here's how Jesus responds. Verse 29, the most important one answered Jesus is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Jesus, he's actually quoting the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6 here. It's a passage known as the Shema. The word here, hear, O Israel, it's the Hebrew word Shema. It means to listen and to obey. You're not just hearing with your ears, you're hearing with your heart. You're applying it to your life. And even today, any devout Jew, they pray this prayer twice a day. They pray the Shema twice a day, once in the morning, once at night. And so the scribe, when Jesus says this, he would have known exactly what he was saying. He would have known the Shema like the back of his hand. Jesus is saying we are meant to love God with all that we are, every single facet of our hum human personality. He says you're to love God with all of your heart, meaning your emotions, all of your soul, meaning your spirit, all of your mind, meaning your intelligence, and all of your strength, meaning your will, everything that you are. But see, here's why this command is so hard for American Christians to live out today. This command is so hard because we define love as this. It's our heart. Love's an emotion. It's a feeling. And so our actions of love are dependent on whether we're feeling love or not. And Jesus would say, no, 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 no. Like, yeah, love's a feeling, but it goes way beyond that. Love involves every single part of who you are. Love isn't just a feeling, an emotion. Love is a choice. It's a choice that is made that then leads to action. 
It's why Jesus says this in John 14. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. He's not saying keep my commands only when you feel loving towards me. No, he's saying the fact that you keep my commands, the fact that you choose to follow and obey me, that you put action to that proves, shows your love for me. He answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And then in true Jesus fashion, they ask for one command. He gives them his second one. He says, and, and he's quoting a commandment from Leviticus 19 here, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Love your neighbor as yourself. In the Old Testament, neighbor meant fellow Jew. Your neighbor was, was literally someone who was in the Jewish race as well. It didn't imply Gentiles, people who were not Israelites. It only meant Jews. And to be honest, I think that's how we kind of define neighbor today. Yeah, neighbors are like the people who live next to me, but neighbors are the people who are like me, right? Neighbors are the people who look like me, who, who act like me, who believe the same way I believe, who vote the same way I vote. But how would Jesus define neighbor? The book of Luke actually records an account in, in, in chapter 10 of Jesus being asked this same question, what's the most important commandment? And he gives the same answer, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. However, in Luke's account, that question is followed up by, and who is my neighbor? Just to clarify, Jesus, let me know, because then I'll do that. And Jesus answers by telling the parable of the Good Samaritan. And that parable is meant to expand their understanding, their definition of what a neighbor is. To Jesus, a neighbor is not simply someone who lives near you or who is like you. A neighbor is even those people who are nothing like you. A neighbor are, are those individuals who, who may even be considered enemies. And this, this command becomes a whole lot harder to live out when, when, you, read it, uh, when you read it as... Um, <laughs> love, love God with everything that you are and love those who are nothing like you in the same way you would love yourself. L love God with everything that you are and love that ignorant person posting things on Facebook in the same way you would love yourself. <laughs> love God and love that infuriating person who has the exact opposite political beliefs that you are. Love that person in the same way you would love yourself. Like that, Jesus, that's a whole different level. Like, I mean, you're asking us to do the impossible. Yeah, that's the point. Like this commandment is utterly impossible to live out. There is no way any single one of us could begin to even come close to living this commandment out unless, unless we had a God who was the very definition of love himself, who showed us this same type of love. Not when we were awesome and perfect and had it all together, but, but when we were maybe even his enemies. Romans says, while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies of God, Christ died for us. Like this commandment's utterly impossible unless there's a God who's the definition of love himself who chooses to love us in that same way. And then we receive that love. 
and we learn how to give that love back to him fully with everything that we are, then and only then would we actually be able to take that same love of God and give it out to others, regardless of who they are. Jesus, he, he, the order he answers this, he's giving us a formula, right? He's saying your, your love for God, it will release the love of God. Your, your love for God and, and the way you do that fully as a response to his great love for you, that is what will release the love of God through you to where you can love others in the same way God loves them, regardless of who they are. Yes, there's an order to this, but they actually can't be separated. That's why Jesus gives two commands. They ask for one and he gives them two, not just as a bonus, but because they go hand in hand. The apostle John, he says it like this in 1 John. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one's even seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. Let's go to the next slide. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he's given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Jesus is saying this is what's most important, love God and love others. When we, when we do that, when we put action to do these two things, we are actually investing in the only two things of this life that are eternal. Your relationship with God and your relationships with others. Those are the only two things that are eternal. Everything else is fading away. And so Jesus says, you want purpose for your life? You want to live a life with eternity in mind? Do these two things well. Love God, love others. That's your purpose. Jesus, he answers this third and final question and look at verse 34. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. <laughs> Inspection passed, right? They're like, oh, dang it, we can't trap this guy. He's proven he's a pure, spotless lamb, worthy of the sacrifice that he's about to make. Remember, it's Tuesday of Passion Week. Good Friday's three days away for Jesus. For us, Good Friday's a little less than two weeks away. It's the day where we're gonna remember and celebrate the sacrifice that Jesus made, where he went to a gruesome death on a cross for our behalf. I mean, church, I can't think of a better way to prepare our hearts for Good Friday than by spending some time this week doing some self-inspecting of our own hearts. Like based off of what we studied today, here are three questions, three self-inspection questions that we could spend some time this week reflecting on and answering ourselves. Maybe you wanna write them down, maybe you wanna snap a picture of the screen, however you wanna remember them. Here's the three questions. The first is this. If I am made in the image of God, what in my life have I not yet given to him? Maybe it's something from my past or my present, or my future, Jesus would say, hey, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's, you're God's. He gets it all. You don't get to pick and choose which pieces. Here's the second question. If there is an eternity, what needs to shift in my life presently? What are those temporary things that I am just giving way too much focus and attention to? God, shift that for me. Show me what those things are. Here's the third question. If my purpose is to love God and others, 
in what ways can I choose to do that greater today? Not just in thought, not just in feeling, not just when it's convenient or when I want to, but to intentionally act upon that, regardless of who the person is, regardless of how I'm feeling. How can I live that out greater today? Spend some time in prayer. Talk with God about this. Talk with your community group about it. However you do it, don't let this week pass by without doing some self-inspection. And here's why I think this is so important. Earlier, I talked about the animal sacrifice that a person would, uh, would make, would offer in exchange for their sin. That this person would, would bring this, this pure spotless lamb before the priest, they'd present him, the priest would inspect him. And before the actual sacrifice took place, the, the offerer, the, the person who's bringing this lamb, they would, they would literally lay their hands on the lamb. They would do that to symbolize them identifying their own sin with this lamb. It was a way for them to express, hey, I am the guilty one. I am the sinful one. I am the one worthy of death, but my sins are now going on this pure spotless lamb and they're gonna take my place. They're gonna bear the weight, the consequences of my sin. And then it was actually the, the offerer, the, 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 the person who brought this lamb who would slaughter the lamb. It wasn't the priest who did it. The person did it. They slaughtered, they killed that lamb. They were active participants in the sacrificial process. They weren't just spectators of it. Because God didn't want this to just be something that they did out of routine. He wanted their hearts to be connected to it. I think the unfortunate thing is that sometimes, especially for those of us who have been a part of church, who have been around Christianity for so long, we allow ourselves to become spectators of the cross. We know the story, we hear it retold, we come to services, we celebrate his resurrection, but we kind of remove ourselves from actually experiencing it. And so that's why I think that setting aside time over the next two weeks leading up to Good Friday to inspect our own hearts, to allow the Holy Spirit to reveal things that maybe we don't even want to hear, but man, it's necessary. I think it's important. It's a way for us to, in a sense, lay our hands upon Christ and say, I'm the guilty one. I'm the sinful one, like I am the one deserving of death, but I put my sins on you and you're gonna pay the price for me. Man, think about how much sweeter Easter weekend will be if we allow ourselves to go through that process. I mean, think of the, the newness of, of gratitude and love and, and hope that will be stirred up in us as we head into Easter weekend. I don't know about you, but I want that. I don't want to just be a spectator of the cross. Let's pray. God, you are such a good, a good and loving father. God, that is, that is most evident 
and the cross and the ultimate sacrifice of love that you're gonna make on our behalf. God, help us realize the magnitude of that. Not just from the a view of a spectator, but from personally experiencing what the cross means for me, for Becky. That it was Becky's sin, it was Becky's shortfalls that put him there. God, draw us to, to spend some time with you this week to just inspect our hearts and allow you to reveal things that, man, you're saying, hey, I wanna work on that. Let's not move past this inspection process too quickly. Let's not arrive at, at, at the tomb, at the resurrection before we've actually dealt with what we need to deal with. God, reveal to us what those things are and give us the strength and the courage to act upon them out of our great love for you. We love you, Father. And we pray these things in your son's awesome and mighty name. Amen.